slow to use the word home because it's not home. It was never home. Institution is the word I'd use. Once they were born, and the day I came out there, life stood still. But they never let me look after another child after what I did. Most of us know where we came from. We know our parents, know where we were born. We have photographs and videos charting every step of our journey. But for generations of Irish people, this right to basic information was denied to them. Born in an Ireland where religion, social class and respectability determined your life story, the children of unmarried parents were treated as other, and thousands were sent to live in institutions. My name is Christine Carroll. I live in Hetford, County Galway. I was there for eight years. It was all right, you know, we got fed, but we didn't never got fed enough. So it was mostly starvation. And uh, we were kind of crowded in one place and everything. So uh, we didn't know any better. We didn't know, you know, this was right or this was wrong. So we kind of just got on with it, you might say. Over a period of eight decades in the 20th century, more than 190,000 women and children were placed in mother and baby institutions and county homes in Ireland, the most infamous of which was located in Toom, County Galway. The Toom Mother and Baby Home was opened by the Bon Secure Sisters in 1925 against the backdrop of an unforgiving social landscape. Uh, Any time any of us got sick or anything, when we had the measles, I remember... We were all put in a big room so that we could get the measles kind of be over with. That's what the nuns said. The institution was a place where unmarried women were sent to give birth and in most cases were then separated from their babies with little chance of ever seeing them again. And the children left behind faced harsh conditions. I remember one time a nun told me to feed this baby. I got I was feeding her, but then after a while in... I went and I ate all the food myself and I was so hungry. And that's when the nun told me she she beat me up, beat me because of what I did. And I cried for days. So uh, that's how bad the starvation was. But they never let me look after another child after what I did. Christine also received different treatment at the local school she attended. It was uh, four of us all together used to go across the road to the school, Mercy, the Mercy Convent. We'd be in there, the four of us, and, and the nuns would tell the t- kids not to talk to us. The teachers, just, there were nuns, so they te- they didn't teach us, they didn't uh, treat us any better. No, they wouldn't even come near us. It was like we had leprosy. No. And we had the big shoes, and they hurt like hell. We weren't allowed to learn anything. We're only good for being skivvies, and that's it. That's all we were, you know, all through my life with nuns. That's all they considered. She won't be any good, she'll be a skivvy, and that was it. Growing up in the institution at Toome was an isolating and stigmatising experience that would leave a physical and psychological mark on most who passed through its doors. Sarah-Anne Buckley, historian at NUI Galway, tells us that Christine's experience was far from unique. So... What we can tell from both the records and from talking to survivors 
is that many of the children are spending a lot of time on potties in crowded conditions. They aren't attending school for the amount of time they should, if they should attend school. And it's not the type of environment that would be conducive to the development of children. So it does not seem like it was a place where there was a lot of fun or joy. And I think that I haven't seen any record that disregards this. My own name is Teresa O'Sullivan and I live in County Limerick. Experiences of neglect and mistreatment were common in the home, as we know from official records and survivor stories. I may not be able to remember the facts and the time and the place, but my life since was very much defined by that beginning as well, I would think so. When I came into St. Patrick's Orphanage in Cork, after coming out of Tume, I was hospitalised for six weeks in, in the hospital as well at the time. And the main thing, I suppose, in my baby photograph, when you'd see it, you'd say that I looked okay. You know, I had a nice dress and matching slippers and, you know, I looked okay in them. But the bottom line is that I would have had uh, severe rashes as well. I would have had impetigo and chronic abscesses in my ear. And I suppose for today, reflecting back on it, there must have been a huge amount of pain for myself and for myself as that little baby at that time. Because as we have known already, um, that there was neglect in Tume, as in many other modern baby homes as well. They talk about lack of nutrition, care, antibiotics and that. And I have no doubt with the severity of pain that I would have experienced when I was in the home. I'm very slow to use the word home as well, because it's not home. It was never home. Institution is the word I'd use. It defines me today. I look back on that little baby and I see the neglect on that little baby. I know I've lived it. And I've seen, I've had pain experiences, I've had major surgery because of it. So I, I have proof of it. I have proof of it, you know, so I'm still living with it. Throw away the bruised. Pay the grower for the clean ones. Pay the grower for the fresh ones, for the ripe ones. Give extra for pretty ones. Weigh them. Mother and baby homes were created at a time when the prevailing view was to hand over control of welfare, health and education to the religious orders, mainly for economic reasons. Irish society decided who was respectable and who was ostracised, and the culture of the time dictated that the church and state play an active role in separating families and creating new ones, as Sarah Ann Buckley explains. From the 19th century... And arguably before, giving birth outside of marriage was seen as very shameful and economically and socially women were stigmatised. And by the 1920s, with Catholic social teaching having a greater impact and effect, women are in an even more precarious position. And I don't think we can underestimate this precariousness and shame of being an unmarried mother or unmarried and pregnant at the time. Children were either boarded out, fostered or adopted from the home, with boys staying up until they were seven at the oldest and girls up to nine years old. But what did life have in store for them after they left the institution in Tume? If one of us uh, 
got to be a fostered out anthem. And the nun would sit down with the person and they'd, uh, they'd show them how to use a knife and fork. That's the only time. And then the, we'd be all look, looking around and wondering. When people came that was going to foster you out, we'd be in one room and we'd be going around kind of thing. We'd like cattle. And the, uh, the people that was going to take us, they'd say, oh, is she good? How's her teeth? We were like cattle. So, uh, but that was the only thing. And if you if you were turned back out, then you you knew you wouldn't you you wouldn't. Uh, there was something you felt like there was something wrong with you. When she was eight years old, Christine was one of those chosen to be fostered. The social worker that was t- to take care of me, she came to me and told me that I was that she was going to bring me out to Hedford. Now I know not knew nothing about it. And when I when I got there, it was Mr. and Mrs. Carroll of Ross, and she she was so nice. I wasn't afraid of her, but her husband was very strict. Now he looked like he'd you know punch anybody, but he was very strict with me, and I was as wild as a March hare. In the back of it, he was he was very kind. You know, he just, he wanted, he wanted me to be, uh, in other words, ideal child. But I wasn't. I was wild, you know. But my foster mother was the nicest woman you ever got. She was like a mother to me. I remember one day when she had an egg and she had the only one egg and she said, she used to call me Tina. She said, Tina, that's the only egg the, chick, the hens are going to lay in. And she gave me the egg. And that's when I found out about love and everything from that woman. My foster father died. I was only there a couple of years. After the death of her foster father, Christine's newfound family life changed with the arrival of a stranger who wanted to adopt her. Came to the house and he told my foster mother that he wanted to adopt me. I was uh, about 10. After that, then, Mrs. Carroll sat me down and told me about my mother. Christine was led to believe that her real mother agreed for her to be adopted and go to live in America, where she went at 16. While records are scarce, this is believed to have been a common practice at the time when children in institutions like the Mother and Baby Home in Chum were adopted by American families. He lived in America. Jersey City. I I left on St. Paddy's Day. Teresa was only one year old when her mother left the home in Chum and she was adopted a year later. My mum was 16 and a half uh, when she got pregnant with me. She had met uh, my father over the summertime. She found herself pregnant and from what I know is that they had actually talked that she would go back to England with him and that they would have a possibility of continuing on the relationship. But what actually did happen is that a week or two afterwards, um, she was talking to her friend and she kind of noticed that he hadn't been around. And then she discovered that he had actually gone back to England without telling her. What happened then was, I think she she told her family, they arranged that she would go to England and that she would have the baby there. 
She was working as a household lady in an organization. And someone in the organization noticed that uh, she was getting bigger because time was moving on with the pregnancy as well. And they reported it over there to the Catholic Guild Association in England. They got in contact then with the Irish Catholic Guild Association here in Ireland. So she was transferred from there and that's how she arrived into Tune. But if she continued on in England because she would have had family over there as well and they would have supported her. She did have some form of contact with my father because what she said was that she had sent letters on um, to tell him when I was born and that. But from what I know is he never received them. So I don't know who intercepted. I, I really can't say what happened in that situation. But he did know that I was born. Myself, I was there nearly two years. What happened was my mum had to go after the year and I was there then for about another 10 months after that again. And I suppose a key piece for today is that my mum came back. And I think that's extremely important to say that as well. But when she came back to the home, she was told that I was gone to America. But I actually wasn't. Uh, at that stage, I was about a year and 10 months and I was transferred to St. Patrick's Orphanage in Cork. And from there, then I was adopted from there. Some adoptions did work out and were happy experiences, as survivors like Teresa will testify. I went to West Cork and I was adopted by a most beautiful family. I knew I was adopted before I went to school at all from four. And I think they had a lovely way of putting it, like they said, that, that I was picked out you know, and that everyone else had to take what they got. <laughs> My adopted mammy, unfortunately, passed away when I was 12. So I remember when she passed away, one of the big things for me was, I remember thinking, I must, I must be grown up now because I have to mind my dad. Because he was now a widow, a widower, um, it was suggested to him that maybe I would go to someone else, not to leave a man on his own minding a young girl, a teenager girl of 12. But how strong he was, you know, he stood his ground and he said, no, he said, Tess is going nowhere. Uh, my name is Peter Mulrine. And I'm from ba living in Banisloe now uh, for the last 45 years. Once the day I was born, on the day I came out there, life stood still. Nothing to remember all, probably. It was, it was like a long playing record going on. It meant nothing whatsoever. Nothing like him outside those walls and was put into a van. When he was four and a half, Peter was fostered by a family that lived about 10 miles from the mother and baby home at Tume. I remember uh, passing by trees and along the roads and never saw it before. And 
we came to an abrupt stop in this at uh, this house, narrow little road, but I didn't know the difference. Now I know what the difference between narrow and wide, and uh, stood outside it and uh, was brought in into the back by the back of the house. And I remember it was a dark, dreary day. I met two people there, who transpired was a mother and her she be well into her sixties, late sixties or seventies anyway, when I arrived there, and. Uh, she was seemed to be nice, and and uh, met the man, which I found out after was her son. He was a bachelor, never never got married, and uh, nice cozy fire down, and I was it was two two story house, and so I was shown to the bedroom then, and big rooms. I thought it was huge, like you know, because I was in such cramped positions before that, and where conditions were so little space and all that, and. And it was a big shock to my system not hearing children, I suppose, as well. And and uh, as I said, I was up in the bedroom and saw this lovely white little bed, iron bed, and lovely white clean clothes. And it stood out like, you know, it's like coming out of a, a black cinema and then going out to see this lovely white. It stands out like it's only yesterday. Back in Jersey City, the path to Christine's new life was not the emigrant's dream. Well, first of all, I went on the plane alone. When I went into the house, there was uh, an old woman there, and I went, I, she was a relation of theirs. And then uh, the only thing around the place was cats. <laughs> she was a cat woman. And then uh, I I went to bed that night and cried my eyes out because I I didn't know what was happening. They never said, they never came over to help me or do anything. Christine describes having no control over the life she lived or the money she earned. They sat me down and they let me sign something. And what what I was signing was signing all the money that I earned. And they said, now you've paid your way over here. Fortunately, Christine had met a nun who had been kind to her when she first arrived in America who she turned to for help. I wasn't used to anybody being kind. I had a chip on my shoulder. I knew nothing but fighting. The nun helped her find a place to stay and Christine went to work in a hospital in Hoboken. I was a nurse's aide there. I was nice to have my own money. I had my own place. I was independent and I had great friends and everything. Then Christine experienced another life-changing event. And I also had my son in America. It's a happy event. I was uh, going with this guy and he told him about it and he denied. So then I was in a predicament. What am I going to do? So I went to the Catholic Charities in in New Jersey and they came out and they. Uh, I told them that I wanted him to be adopted and I wanted him to have a family uh, a family that doesn't have kids, but he'd be important. So uh, they arranged it and everything for me. And the one thing uh, they they said to me that I, after having the baby, that I wasn't allowed to see him. So I, I said to one of the doctors, I said to a nurse, I said, I gave birth to that child. I've all the rights. No, you don't. No, you don't. And I said, who's going to stop me? 
So nobody stopped me, and I seen the child. And that was all I wanted. You know, he was gorgeous. Born to unmarried parents, many of the children from the mother and baby homes endured traumatic childhoods after being fostered or adopted. Peter was no different, and a life of physical abuse and hard work unfolded before him. Because it was very common in the rural Ireland, like, you know, say there wasn't a village, but there was maybe four or five boarded out children. They got money every month for minding us, for feeding us, and for clothing us. But um, it would be very, very little, little spent on us, like, you know, very little. Because I'd be in my, in my bare feet for Easter till November. She was helpful and nice to me. And uh, he would be the guy that would belt me and beat me, torture me. And sometimes I, w- I would be beaten with nettles, put in semi-trousers. For what, like? An innocent child. For what? I just can't get my head around He was so violent. He took the law into his own hand. And the only thing that kept me sane was, she would, when I'd be screaming, she would say to me, she would say to him, leave him alone. Someday you might be damned glad to have him yet. That kept me going, them few words. Peter went to the local school but could be taken out to work on the farm at any time. His singing talent was discovered, but opportunities to perform were limited, even though he won competitions as a child. First year, no, I wasn't brought. Second year, again, competition came up again, and uh, I won again, and uh, I knew how I was coming this time. I wouldn't be brought. It was time-consuming, work on the farm, and that's it. A very strong memory of kids playing next door in our field from the house, and they, and they assemble every Sunday morning. It was 12 o'clock. They stayed there for a couple of hours. Yeah, they'd be 12 or 13. All my own classmates and older like, you know. All I could do was look through the hedge at them, and they were, Water was coming out of my mouth, like dying to go out and kick the ball, catch it, or do something, lay my hand, play with the lads, join the foot. No. I looked through the hedges, that's all I could do. And that went on for years. I was there until I was 32, 31 years of age, under that roof. I was afraid to leave. Where would I go? Uh, no friends, no education. Where would I go? Coming up in part two. As the children from the Toom Institution grew up, they faced more barriers once they began to search for information about their parents and their early years. The impact on Teresa, Christine and Peter was felt well into adulthood. I never told them. I think a lot of us didn't tell because we were afraid how people reacted. I reported my sister missing four years ago. haven't heard anything back. Nobody local, either church or uh, county council or anyone in authority, they didn't want to hear about it. I have a tear in my eye right now, actually, in the sense of we have to fight so hard to get where we are. They'll even come They'll after your soul and chew it and refuse to release it. To release it. This programme is an Eon City Stories production in conjunction with the Two Moral History Project at NUI Galway. Narrated by Killian Murphy. 
Excerpts from the poems Blood, Child and the Harvest by Elaine Feeney. Created and produced by Sarah Ann Buckley, Lorna Farron and Orla Higgins. Script by Orla Higgins and Lorna Farron. Editing and sound design by Alan Meany. Audio direction by Orla Higgins. And original soundtrack by Anna Malarkey. Recorded at Flirt FM, NUI Galway and Bounce Sound Dublin.